Science now makes the three-parent embryo a reality. What are the ethical implications? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Jonathan Marino. Dr. Marino is the David and Lynn Selfin Professor of Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for joining us. Could you begin by explaining the work that has been published from Newcastle, England? Actually, Maury, I'm not sure that the studies themselves have been published yet, but I'll describe what we know from the news media, and then I want to say something about the way this came into the media. We know that there are dozens of diseases that are associated with mitochondrial DNA, and we also appreciate that there's very little that can be done other than to manage a person with one of these disorders. An idea that people have had for a while was that you could, through in vitro fertilization techniques, eliminate the mitochondrial DNA and have a successful live birth without an affected child. So what they did in Newcastle was essentially remove the nucleus from an embryo with the mitochondria of an affected woman. They then enucleated another egg and they placed this nuclear DNA, the DNA of, with all the chromosomes of mother, mother and father, into this second egg. And they did this about with about 10 embryos, with exactly 10 embryos, according to the reports. Now, this is not actually a completely new process. In 2001, an American group did this. Actually, they removed the ooplasm and, and put in new ooplasm with healthy mitochondria. No child has ever been produced this way. When the American group did it back in 2001, the Food and Drug Administration immediately said that this came under their territory, and they asserted their jurisdiction over this for any future work, so it would have to go through an IND process, essentially, through the FDA if it was done in the U.S. The U.K. team at Newcastle-upon-Tyne did not permit any of these embryos to be implanted. They were destroyed after five or six days. But what I think is interesting is that there's a certain amount of hype about this, first of all, because, you know, it's three parents and anything like that gets people excited. But also it's interesting that this was not actually published yet, as far as I know, except reported in the news media. And apparently there was a verbal report of this work done at a, at a science meeting, which was attended by a physician who was in the House of Lords. And this physician then got up on the floor of Parliament in the House of Lords and talked about it, and this is how it got into the news. So two things I want to say about this. First of all, there is, in this country, FDA jurisdiction over such a procedure. And secondly, we are really now living in the period of biology by press conference, where the public popular media are so fascinated by all this that they report something, and really they say misleading things. The procedure actually did not involve, it was kind of a proof of concept, did not involve any embryo or egg that could have been put into a woman. These were all uh, anomalous embryos that they used, and eggs from fertility clinic. And so they would not have been actually implanted under any circumstances. So in theory, this would work to avoid producing a child with a mitochondrial-related disorder. But in fact, they were, did not intend to do that, and it's never been done. It's an interesting thing you bring up about the media and how the media drives science rather than science drive media. I remember my patients always coming in and referring to the journal about new information that they thought I might not have. I always thought they were referring to the New England Journal of Medicine. They were not. They were referring to the Wall Street Journal. And I would always wonder, how did they get this information I didn't even know about? And then maybe two weeks later, when the New England Journal finally 
that particular issue got to me, I would find out what they were talking about. I remember an editor named Arnold Relman who used to plead with the uh, media people, please don't publish things until physicians at least have the articles on their desk. His pleading you know, went... It went to deaf ears, as a matter of fact. You know, we saw this in its, perhaps its most vigorous form when the National Human Genome Research Institute and Craig Venter's group, remember this seven years ago, were in a race to see who could, quote-unquote, map the genome first. And there were basically dueling press conferences. And now what you're seeing is, particularly with the impact of technology transfer in small companies that want to impress venture capitalists or their stockholders, you know, they're having press conferences before they publish. I had always thought it was the other way around, that to succeed in the academic world, you tried to get your articles into print. And if you actually talked about them at meetings before the journal that had accepted the article heard about it, they would pull your article. I knew that was true of the New England Journal. If you talked about your research at a meeting before they published it, they would pull your article right out of the journal. This is still true of the major journals in the, in the academic world, but if you're not an academic, if you've got a small company, then you want people to know that you're onto something, and you hope that the money will, will come to you, and then you'll go ahead and you go through the FDA. You don't necessarily need to publish very early. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Jonathan Marino. Dr. Marino is the David and Lynn Selfin Professor of Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, and we're discussing how the media often drives medical science. I had thought that the mitochondrial diseases, which are mainly myopathies, existed in the area around Newcastle, and this is what had caused the scientists in that area to become so involved. Well, I don't know the epidemiology. Of course, one sees mitochondrial-related disorders in this country, too. You know, I think partly the reason that the people in Newcastle were involved is that they have probably the most robust human fertility work in the, in the world, certainly at least as powerful a group as anybody else, and they have a particularly strong standing with the British agency called the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, which is essentially the agency that gives um, licenses to do this kind of work. So, for example, the Newcastle group and the group in, in Scotland that produced Dolly have the only two licenses from the HFEA in the UK to do somatic cell nuclear transfer, otherwise known as cloning. So they're working in, my understanding is that the group in Newcastle is working in all these areas related to fertility if they can. And I think that the BHFEA, this authority that you mentioned, had changed their stance on, on dealing with this particular research. Yeah, they did. And I have to say that it's not clear exactly why. When it was first done, the, there, there seemed to be um, initial concerns about the possibility of harms for a, a fetus. But apparently they've decided that uh, they will allow the kind of proof-of-concept work we've just been talking about to proceed, and then they're going to make a judgment about, uh, about actually bringing a baby to term this way. That's my impression, anyway. And I think their work really isn't about propagation. It's dealing with a disease that has no cure, and obviously the people who will benefit are the patients or the prodigy of these people who are carrying this trait. So it isn't about propagating a species. No, no, exactly right. Now, of course... There are people who will say that, and we can talk more about this, but there are people who say that any of this kind of work is objectionable because it's eugenic in spirit. That is to say, it's, you know, it's, we're trying to make healthier, a healthier race uh, somehow and, and eliminating people who are in, in some sense inferior or thought to be inferior. I don't have that view, but you know, that obviously is a source of opposition to a lot of this 
the basic work around reproduction. Yes, and some of the critics that I read about with this particular work have responded to, you know, in our culture now, same-sex couples can have children and raise them. And they're now concerned, shall we say, that a gay couple or a lesbian couple could indeed have their own child with DNA from both part members of the couple with that DNA injected or put into a egg that has had DNA removed. And this, for some reason, again, catches the eye of the media, where really it seems that whenever we talk about advances in genetics, people give examples that have nothing to do with where we're going with this work. Yeah, there's a lot of, of hyperbole, no, no question about it. And, and as a matter of fact, there are probably going to be numerous ways to do what you've just described, Maury, that is to say, enable a gay couple or a lesbian couple or even a childless individual to have a baby that is you know, genetically linked to that individual to that, or to that couple. The work that was, that, that was done last fall that was reported having to do with creating pluripotent stem cells, in that case from, from skin cells, that kind of work actually could also be applied to this concept of making babies that are in some way related to one member of a gay couple. You're talking about the work of Jim Thompson and Shinya Yamanaka from Kyoto, uh, who, who have both published recently about reprogramming skin cells to act like stem cells. Could you respond to where this is going? One of the goals, at least, is, is to make cells that are compatible with the person from whom they came. So if, for example, I had a disorder that had to do with some uh, tissue system, some organ, then in, in the, the, an ideal would be taking my skin cells, uh, which are you know, my own DNA, and then turning them into the tissues that I needed. This is what we're calling regenerative medicine. This would also be a way of, in theory, avoiding the use of embryos in order to obtain pluripotent cells. However, this is obviously a very, you know, this is a very new and still in many ways theoretical technique. The genetic factors that were used both in Kyoto and in Wisconsin and Madison to do this last year are associated with oncogenes. So now there is interest in finding other ways of reprogramming these adult cells back into pluripotent cells. So that, because that technique obviously would not be acceptable. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Marino, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the ethical implications of a three-parent embryo as well as the pluripotent character of skin cells. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.